Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. No one had ever done a show like that on either of the coasts. And, you know, she was completely under-recognized. It was just a matter of racism and sexism. That's Professor Lisa Freiman, an internationally renowned expert in contemporary art. She is an independent curator, arts consultant, and writer with a tenured faculty appointment in Virginia Commonwealth University's School of the Arts. From 2013 to 2018, she served as the inaugural director of VCU's Institute for Contemporary Art, or ICA, completing a $37 million capital campaign, launching the endowment campaign, and co-curating the opening exhibition, Declaration. She previously served as senior curator and chair of the Contemporary Art Department at the Indianapolis Museum of Art between 2002 and 2013, and was commissioner of the U.S. Pavilion in the 54th International Art Exhibition, La Biennale di Venezia. Her largest project, while in Indianapolis, was 100 Acres, the Virginia B. Fairbanks Art and Nature Park, which opened to international critical acclaim in June 2010. Prior to joining IMA, Dr. Fryman was an assistant professor of art history at the University of Georgia, Athens, and served in the curatorial department of the Institute of Contemporary Art, Boston. She earned her PhD and MA degrees in modern and contemporary art history from Emory University and has a BA from Oberlin College. Hi, Lisa. Thanks, Max. I'm so happy to be with you. It's great to connect, and it is, coincidentally, at a time when the museum we both served is going through a cataclysm in light of the revelation that its past director now approved a job description seeking a candidate committed to maintaining the, quote, core white audience of the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Full disclosure, as some of our listeners know, he succeeded me as director, so I'm not a disinterested observer, but then again, neither are you. So, do you have some thoughts you want to share about this extraordinary moment? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts, as you might imagine. First of all, I'm glad to see that this change occurred, as I think a lot of people are who worked at the IMA back in the day when we were there and left because they didn't agree with the direction of the former director. As you know, it's a fraught time for museums all over the country, and it's caught up in the original sin of the founding of this country related to racism and institutional racism, which has dominated the way that museums have operated and the programming that they focused on, obviously, the artists that they've collected. In that way, I don't think that the IMA is that different from a lot of institutions. The former director said something that other people wouldn't have said, for sure, but it would have been implicit in some other institutions. You know, it's a broader problem, and it needs to be addressed. And it, you know, it has been being addressed in museums to some extent. When the Mellon did its study on diversity, a number of studies around leadership, identifying, what was it, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that museums needed to be diversified in order to reflect a a broader part of the world and the communities that they serve. And that's begun happening, but it's slow moving. It's a situation that I'm glad to see is improving, but you don't see that on the staff at the IMA. It's really predominantly in all of the leadership positions and curatorial positions. It's primarily white. And the first African-American curator left because she said it was a racist and toxic workplace. Kelly Morgan is someone who 
is very respected in the field and she couldn't stay and was traumatized by the experience there. And it took months and months in order for people to really believe what it was that she was saying. And so that in and of itself is tragic and has to change. And it's only going to change if the staff and the board become truly diverse in the way that the community and the staff has demanded. The statement from the board indicates that they heard what people were saying and they committed to making changes and coming up with a plan for change in the next month. And I applaud them for that. It's going to mean that a lot of them are going to have to leave the board and they're going to have to do a a much more rigorous recruiting process for diversity and inclusion in terms Mm -hmm. of the board and also rebuilding the staff and the leadership as well. And it's interesting in all of that thinking, you haven't mentioned the program because there hasn't been a program. There hasn't been an artistic program that is typical of an art museum. Whereas when you were the curator of contemporary art, you had a program and it included many artists whose works challenged receive wisdom, including Maria Magdalena Campos Ponza's incredible exhibition, Everything is Separated by Water. Can you talk a bit about how that exhibition and that kind of work both was important for Indianapolis, how it was received, and what it meant to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the most difficult thing for me to watch over the last eight years has been the destruction of the program that I built with so many other people while I was there. And it was a program that was focused on opening up the museum and offering the Indianapolis and Indiana community and beyond opportunities to engage with contemporary art, to feel like they could get to know artists, they could speak with artists, that it could generate a kind of excitement and energy and a deeper interest in objects and their inclusion in the collection. And Magda and I go back to around 1990, I'm dating myself here, but I had just gotten out of college and was working at the ICA in Boston as practically a kid. And I was working as a curatorial assistant on an exhibition called El Corazon Sangrante, or The Bleeding Heart, and her work was included in it. And it was back in the day of slides. And I remember seeing some of her work in slides and being really interested in it. She was you know, as a Cuban artist, she, in the 80s, they started opening up opportunities for artists to go into residencies and fellowships in North America, particularly in Canada and the United States, and then also in Germany. And as a result of that, Magda was at Banff in Canada at the time. And so she couldn't get into the United States because of American politics, and her husband was here. And so it was a All of this is to say I couldn't meet her in person, and so I met her through her slides first. We developed a a friendship, I guess, before we even really met each other, and then when she finally came to Boston, we became friends, and I was a supporter of her work. And then when I went to graduate school in Atlanta, I decided to focus on African diasporic art and African-American art. And so there was a really terrific scholar there named David Brown, who literally has written a book about Santeria arts and aesthetics. And so I was studying with David and decided I would do my master's thesis on Magda because 
it made so much sense. You know, I had a, a close relationship with her. And obviously when you're working on writing about a living artist, to have access to them is the most important thing. And so I did that and Magda and I got even closer and I really developed a deep, deep knowledge of her work as well as the context for it in Cuba during the 80s and 90s. And then when I went to the IMA, I walked onto the campus and I was blown away at how beautiful it was. You know, 152 acres, the historic lily house, um, the museum itself, it was going to be undergoing an expansion and a renovation. And they wanted someone to develop 100 acres. And, you know, it just was so exciting. And so all of this is just context for the opportunity that was before me. And one of the things that was really exciting was that it was a clean slate. It was completely open. And that was certainly true in terms of the exhibitions that were being organized there. I think I irritated some people in the process. Well, I know I did, but it wasn't even about ambition. It was just about passion and opportunity and just excitement to be able to do. And with Magda, I pitched the idea of doing a mid-career retrospective of hers. And I didn't know whether it was going to be accepted. And it was in the major exhibition space, which, what was it, like 12,000 square feet. So this would be really important. And I, you know, being an academic, wanted to do an exhibition catalog. And um, we wound up doing a book with Yale. And it was incredible for a lot of different reasons. It was incredible, obviously, because it was a Black Cuban woman who was getting a mid-career retrospective at an encyclopedic museum in the Midwest. The fact that no one had ever done a show like that on either of the coasts. And, you know, she was completely underrecognized. It was just a matter of racism and sexism. To be able to teach people through her work about the history of Cuba and slavery and, you know, women and their traditions there, it was a truly extraordinary experience to be able to do that in the museum. You know, she still hasn't had another major exhibition, but that was one of the things that was exciting about being there was that we could take chances and we didn't have to necessarily follow the fads or the focus of what a lot of other people were focusing on. And when I was there, I just wasn't interested in the market, you know, in the art market. I was much more interested in art. So Lisa, you went from a Cuban artist to two artists in Puerto Rico and put together an extraordinary U.S. pavilion in the Venice Biennale in 2011. Can you just describe that experience? Sure. It was a blind date, the, the first meeting with the artists. I'd liked their work for a long time. And, you know, I'd been thinking about the Venice Biennale and the history of it and the artists that had been shown. And I really wanted to propose an exhibition that was focused on art that was being made now, um, or at that time at least, and by living artists and I've always been very interested in doing work and commissioning works with artists. And I thought that there had never been a collaborative represented in the Biennale in its history. And there had never been artists from a U.S. territory. So Puerto Rico also being a Spanish-speaking commonwealth was 
interesting to me because it raised the questions of, you know, what is American? What is America? What is American identity? Which is so focused um, in the question of the U.S. pavilion and in, in the Biennale in general, since it's, it's essentially the Olympics of the art world and it's all different countries competing against one another in a sense. And so we developed a project that really was site responsive to the pavilion. And Jennifer and Guillermo are conceptual artists, and they really took it to heart and thought about the way that the exhibition of the Biennale and the U.S. Pavilion related to many different kinds of competition, competition in in economics, in sports, in the military, etc. And they developed the project that we did, Gloria, it was it was the best experience of my life and the most fascinating <laughs> and the most difficult. <laughs> yeah. And, well, it was exciting. We had to get permission from the Italian government to install a bank operating an ATM in the Giardini for the first time. You had so many fascinating requirements that the artist passed on to you that we just tackled. And it was truly, for me, also a huge highlight. And I'm grateful to you for bringing it forward. Do you think there's a legacy from that project? It was, of course, widely noticed. We had an inverted tank with an Olympic runner on it and it was pretty right, hard and to working miss. With, with actual Olympic um, medalists and, uh, mm-hmm. from track and field and gymnastics. Um, well, I guess, yeah, I guess there is, you know, I mean, when, as the years have gone on, when I meet new people overseas or in other places in art contexts, and they find out that I was the curator of that Biennale, you know, they always, everybody knows it. And they always say that it was such a brave show and that they didn't think at the time Americans understood how critical it was (laughs) and um, how much it was coming out of a position of critique of the United States and that it was brave because, and they were shocked that we were able to pull it off. So Lisa, one of the astonishing things was that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton approved the project, as you say, notwithstanding the fact that it was so critical of the United States. That must have yeah, been I gratifying. Mean, as you know, I, I was just absolutely certain that it was the right time uh, historically to propose the project and that it would never get any better with Obama in the White House and with Secretary Clinton in charge of the State Department. And I think a lot of people don't know that the commissioner and the institution get selected through the State Department. It's a program that is run through there. And so it has to essentially get signed off on. And when I was speaking with my counterpart at the State Department, who does all the coordination of the Biennales, he told me that the decision had been unanimous for the project, which was very unusual. And he also told me that what was unusual is it had to go all the way up to the top because nobody wanted to sign off on it and get in trouble, essentially. <laughs> so um, I, I heard that actually um, it went all the way up to to Secretary Clinton at the time, which amused me immensely. <laughs> yes. Lisa, you often got us into good trouble, to quote John Lewis. And the other huge project that you undertook was to wrangle 100 acres of untamed woods and a 40-acre lake inside that to become one of the world's largest art parks. One of the most extraordinary pieces of which is Alfredo Jarre's Park of the Laments. Could you talk about that commission in particular of all the commissions you did for the yeah, park? Yeah. Um- That was the hardest, (laughs) as you probably know, because it was called Park of the Laments and or it is called Park of the Laments and it's been 
officially acquired by the museum. It is essentially a park within a park and uh, very unusual for Alfredo. Alfredo, um, he did do public interventions, but he had never done a permanent public project before. And we, like all of the artists, invited him out to the site a few times to try to figure out what he responded to and what he might be interested in doing. And it took him a really long time because he's a very thoughtful person. And he had two ideas. And this was the one we went with. And it was at a time when he was feeling really overwhelmed. As you know, his work deals with tragedy. It deals with looking at and and putting into critical perspective crimes against humanity, genocide, homelessness. And he was exhausted. Uh, You could just see it in the way Mm -hmm. that he was talking. and, And he just said, you know, I need peace. I need a place like to just a restful place. And so he created Park of the Laments, which, as I said, is created as a park within a park. It's made out of all natural materials. You enter into this tunnel, which is bordered with gabion baskets full of rocks. I'm actually looking at a picture of it that he made for me. And to him, he said that all of the rocks represented all of the places in the world where there had been atrocities. So Darfur, Sudan, Nigeria, Yemen, Congo, Iraq, you know, it go, the list unfortunately goes on and on. And so you walk through these baskets that form the wall and you go through a tunnel and the tunnel is very dark and cool um, and you can literally see light at the end of the tunnel. And when you get to it, there is a vomitorium where you walk up the stairs and then when you get to the top it is park it is essentially a square and the grass is the bottom and he planted indigenous trees along the sides so those are sort of the sides of it and then the sky is the top of it essentially it's an amazing example of land art of recent land art and All of the project was done, not just with structural engineers and architects, but also with the horticulturalists from the IMA staff. And we planted everything with native species so that it would reseed and fill out. And it's become a place where people go and they sit. It's very quiet and peaceful and they meditate. There have been dance performances in there. People have gotten married in there. You see people with little kids just sitting on the ground. It's really a beautiful and thoughtful space. There are so many installations you did in the park that would warrant full description, but instead we'll send our listeners to see some of the content available online. You also had an entrepreneurial streak. You created an extraordinary experience for people coming to the downtown part of the city, which was an art hotel called the Alexander by curating its contents. What do you see as the lines needed, if any, between experiences of art in a nonprofit setting and a commercial setting? You know, I think I think the Alexander and 21C hotels both have done a terrific job in terms of incorporating art to maximize the unique experience for people who are staying in the hotels, but then also having a broader community-focused mission, which is making it open and free to the public. And so 
you know, the Alexander, one of the things that was really important to me was to make sure that the bulk of the art budget was spent in all of the public areas so that any downtown Indianapolis public school kids could come in and see a work by, you know, Sonia Clark, for example, on Madam C.J. Walker. Or we worked and we made a bar. The bar there is completely designed by the MacArthur genius Jorge Pardo from Mexico. And so these are opportunities that people normally just wouldn't get to have. And so we did that actually, as you know, as an opportunity to generate revenue for the IMA post-recession. And (laughs) it was a good thing because it helped the museum, but it also helped the public with having another art experience in a city that, you know, when I first moved there, it was difficult to get the New York Times <laughs> delivered, you know, and it was a, I always said, you know, it felt literally and metaphorically flat to me. And so I was interested in creating experiences of wonder and energy and delight. And so it doesn't matter that it's a for-profit place because they're using some of their profit in order to create something that's good for the public. Commercial galleries often are doing the most adventurous programming and exhibitions and advocacy as museums are looking towards commercial models. And this inversion of reality is a problem to be addressed. But you've been very active as an art consultant. And just a few weeks ago, you completed a consultancy as chief curator overseeing the art program for the new Hans Rosling Center for Population Health collaborating with the University of Washington, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and others. Can you talk a bit about that program and how you pulled it off during COVID? (laughs) With the help of a lot of people and Zoom. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, that was an amazing opportunity. Um, The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came forward for that project and made the largest gift they've ever made to the university to build that center. And obviously, population health is central to Bill and Linda Gates's work. So it made sense. And they do the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is housed in that new building now, is one of the places that's doing all of the COVID modeling on the numbers and has been since the start. The whole research around vaccines is very important there as well. So It was really exciting (laughs) pre-COVID, and it was even more exciting during COVID because knowing that I was working on a project that was connected to population health around the world was very rewarding. But Bill and Melinda Gates also came forward with an identified gift for the art program and wanted to ensure that it was robust. And so I was fortunate to be tapped to work on it and... I worked really closely with everyone at University of Washington, all of the tenants interviewed everybody, did listening tours, trying to find out the different groups that were going to be in the buildings. They were coming from different places and for the first time being brought together in one center to avoid siloing. And so this was very much an attempt to try to get some consensus around what was needed in terms of the experience of art. And then we also uh, had an artist advisory board that was made up with people from the Art and Design School and Art History, as well as Shamim Momim from the Henry Art Gallery and others. And it was very much a methodical process over time to figure out what was most needed. And so 
actually, we wound up with two projects that I worked on. One project that Starbucks did, because there's a Starbucks in the building, and they always involve a local artist. And there's an artist named Ben Zamora, who's a Seattle artist who did a light project in there. And then the Washington Arts Council contributed some money. And then we all selected a really fantastic artist from, I think she's from Tacoma, called Ryan Vedderson. And the University of Washington has one of the oldest and most important campus art programs in the country. It has an amazing Robert Irwin. It has one of Barnett Newman's broken obelisks. And for me, there was this feeling that there needed to be an outdoor sculpture and people agreed and really wanted something permanent. And I knew that there were no African or African-American sculptors in the collection or on the grounds. And so I started looking at different artists. And eventually, you know, when I saw the Wangechi Mutu sculptures in the niches of the Met, a light went on in my head. And I was like, this is it. This completely connects to, you know, the mission, the ideas. It metaphorically aligned so much with what the Population Health Center was doing that, when I brought it to everyone, everyone agreed. So whereas, you know, the process was a little slow going in when it was right, it really landed well. And then the other project that I did was a commissioned project indoors. I haven't posted that yet, but it is a 60 foot long commission suspended from the ceiling by an artist named Rachel Michael Weiss. And is made up of hundreds of thousands of pieces of silk rope that are hand dyed in this sort of orangey yellow color. And the way that it's constructed is to essentially replicate the seven summits of the world on the different continents. And it unifies the outline of them and combines them all together. One of the benefits of being both a professor but an independent curator is surely enjoying all the fruits of citizenship, which in your case has meant being outspoken about American politics, the trauma of Trump's presidency, and all the transgressions against democracy and decency over the last few years. But institutional culture usually quells candor of that kind. Do you think that's changing? And do you think protest is becoming more feasible in art museums? (laughs) I think it depends on which art museum you're talking about. You know, certainly protest within and outside of art museums has been going on since the 60s with the Art Workers Coalition and, and beyond. You know, I think, yes, absolutely. The climate in the United States has made it so that people have needed to protest and be more outspoken. Going back to what we started talking about at the beginning today, the reckoning that's happening with cultural institutions right now is being pushed often, we see now, by the staff within. And I think that's a good thing because the hierarchical power structures that exist and have existed have made it really difficult for people to speak out I think that institutions are institutions and they like to control speech and the way that things are presented and it's always going to be a problem, honestly. (laughs) Right, which is what is helpful about having you able to take on projects that interest you, that move you, that allow for impact in ways beyond a single institution. And 
So I'm just saying today how much I look forward to what comes next, Lisa, and I thank you so much for making the time to be with me today. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Dr. Lisa Fryman, independent curator, arts consultant, and writer with a tenured faculty appointment in Virginia Commonwealth University's School of the Arts. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. <laughs>